from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney, and I will be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. This week, we're re-airing an award-winning Terra Informa original from 2014. The piece by Trevor Chow Fraser and Danielle Dolgoy explores fracking. What is fracking exactly? We'll hear all our fracking answers right after these headlines. New regulations proposed by Fisheries and Oceans Canada would allow for oil and gas exploration in the middle of the marine protected area it plans to establish in the Laurentian Channel off of the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. Currently, the department is seeking public feedback on their proposal, but many environmental advocacy groups, including the Council of Canadians, WWF Canada, and the Sierra Club Canada, believe that permitting oil and gas permits could have permanent negative impact on the area. Species at risk that call the Laurentian Channel home include the leatherback sea turtle, northern wolffish, and North Atlantic right whale, as well as migratory whale species. Opponents say that allowing oil and gas exploration in a marine protected area would go against the very mandate of such areas. Fisheries and Oceans Canada argues that any greenlit project will comply with conservation objectives and be subject to an environmental assessment, and that the proposed plan would protect vulnerable species while promoting economic growth. The government plans to ban recreational and commercial fishing in the area. They also argue that the animals concerned are mobile creatures who can move away from noises and disturbances associated with oil and gas exploration. However, noise pollution and signals generated by this activity have been found to damage zooplankton, widely affecting the marine food chain. These disruptive signals have also been found to negatively impact whale activity, as they rely heavily on sound in hunting, feeding, mating, and playing. The proposed regulations would prohibit oil and gas activities within the most sensitive zones and restrict seismic activity during migratory seasons. On June 24th, a 30-day public consultation period for the proposed regulations began. To voice your opinion, you can email Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Fisheries and Oceans Minister Dominique LeBlanc we will put up their contact info at terrainforma.ca, as well as a link to the government's impact analysis statement. Researchers have published a new study in the journal Global Ecology and Conservation looking at the effects of Harry Potter on the illegal owl pet trade in Indonesia. Surveying 20 bird markets in Bali and Java, they report that owl sales have risen dramatically since the first film adaptation in 2001. Before 2001, sales hovered around a few hundred per year, but in 2016, as many as 13,000 were sold. Study co-author Vincent Nijman has said that although this kind of link is hard to prove, he's pretty sure the popularity of the series, which predominantly features owls as magical pets, is the cause for the normalization of owls as pets. 
one indicator can be found in changing colloquial language. In Malay, a main Indonesian language, the term for owl is burung hantu, but now they are commonly being called burung Harry Potter. Indonesian bird markets are known for selling wild-caught birds as pets, and the most sought-after variety of owl is the Scops owl, a genus which includes endangered species. Though the owl trade is technically illegal in Indonesia, authorities have yet to take action. The researchers propose that owls be added to Indonesia's protected species list in order to raise awareness of their unsuitability as pets among prospective buyers. The largest peer-reviewed study to date on the effect of neonicotinoid pesticides on bees found that overall the pesticides had a negative impact on bee populations. This may come as an unpleasant surprise to the industry sponsors of the research. Bayer Crop Science and Syngenta, two major neonicotinoid manufacturers, Despite funding the study themselves, they are now questioning the results of the study and continue to defend the use of these pesticides. Neonicotinoid pesticides have caused alarm as a possible contributor to worldwide bee declines, as they are applied to seeds and later can be found in pollen of the affected plant. Although this study seems more extensive and conclusive than previous ones conducted, it did not provide clear-cut answers to all questions. For example, bees in UK and Hungarian sites were harmed, but German bees actually showed a short-term positive effect. However, despite controversy, it was found that in particular, the chemicals reduce honeybees' ability to survive their winter hibernation, and the conclusion of the study overall reflected negatively on the continued use of neonicotinoid pesticides. Those were this week's headlines, and now it's time to hear our fracking answers. For some, it's the dirty energy with the dirty-sounding name. For others, it's a revolutionary way to provide clean energy. And we're talking about fracking. You probably feel like you belong in one camp or the other. But have you thought about why? How well do you really know the actual risks and benefits of fracking? Trevor Chow Fraser and Danielle Dolgoy realized they didn't even know exactly what fracking is. So they researched and talked with experts who do. This story brings together the expertise of Dr. Avner Vengosh, Dr. Daniel Alessi, C. Alexia Lane, and Dr. Rick Shalat Turinik. All together, we answer three big questions that we found you had about fracking. So tell me, what do you know about fracking? What's fracking? What do you know about the, the process of fracking? And do you know where fracking takes place? Do you know where the name fracking comes from? No idea. <laughs> As it turns out, many people don't have a clear idea of what fracking is. Danielle here has been hitting the streets to ask people these basic questions about fracking. 
gauging people's general awareness of the practice, and taking people's temperature on whether or not it's something they'd like to know more about. And she's heard a whole range of answers. I have heard the term. I cannot recollect what it referred to, though. I know that it's a technique for drilling or separating oil. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it sounds like it's something over the internet, and it sounds like hacking to me. I have no idea. I know that there's some sort of um, controversy around if it's, uh, I don't know if it's sustainable or if it's uh, environmentally friendly. So I know that there's a little bit of controversy around fracking. Well, he's got one thing right. Fracking is controversial. And that's why we want to help with the effort to get an informed and educated debate going. After gauging the public's understanding of the issue, we've come up with three big questions it seems like people want answered. To that end, we spoke with several experts on fracking issues, who we will introduce in a moment. So, Trevor, let's dive right in. The first big question. Just what exactly is this process called fracking? They take a lot of water, sand, and these chemicals and pump them into the earth and use that to force oil and natural gas through shale, which is a pretty porous substance, and it rises up and they can either pump the oil out of the ground or just accept the natural gas as it rises up. Fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing. It's a process for extracting natural gas. There are similar processes for extracting bitumen and oil, but these days, when people talk about fracking, they're referring to the process of natural gas extraction. How does it work? First, you drill a special kind of well. You drill straight down, and when you reach a certain point, you turn the drilling sideways and start to dig horizontally across a field of shale. Here's Avner van Gosch, a major international expert on fracking at Duke University. You are drilling about three, four kilometers in depth uh, vertically and then you go horizontally another kilometer or two kilometers and you induce very high pressure, a thousand times the, the, the surface pressure and you're actually bombarding the subsurface. So it's just a measure of, of thousands of, of explosion. This high pressure cracks open the rock, which is generally shale. You know, that flaky kind of rock you sometimes find in gardens? Natural gas trapped in between those layers is then released. To create this high pressure, a fluid needs to be injected into the well. This fluid can be over 99% water, but there are other things in there too. Here's Daniel Alessi, a geochemical expert at the University of Alberta. Okay, so the process is that you put the water down the well at high pressures, right? It's mixed with a, a several things, so the biocides, which prevent the growth of microbes, which, you know, biofouling is a, is a big issue. There's propens, which are physical, you know, physical material sort of grains that hold the fractures open once they're created so that you get continued release of the gas from the shales. And a slew of other things, uh, things like corrosion inhibitors. So you have something like, you know, certainly hundreds of chemicals uh, typically used in, in the fracturing process. So this fracking fluid is injected into the shale formation deep underground. The pressure cracks open the pores of the rock. Then, the pressure is released. But to keep the cracks from sealing shut again, propens in the fracking fluid, basically sand or ceramic beads, hold the pores open. Then the gas is pumped back to the surface along with the fracking fluid. Not all of the fracking fluid comes back, though. 
And not everything that comes back is all that desirable. This is where we start to run into some of the big environmental concerns about fracking. That's our second big question. What are the risks of pollution due to fracking? What's fracking? It's a process to get natural gas. I know that much. And I've seen the videos of people who are in areas where there's heavy fracking and they can actually light their uh, tap water on fire and there's big bursts of it. So I'm guessing it's not that great for communities and probably not great for the environment either. Fracking will set your water on fire. This is the most common fear that we heard about fracking. And you know what? It's totally true. According to Avner Van Gogh, natural gas can leak out of the fracking wells, where it ends up in the groundwater aquifer. And if you don't live in the city, well, that's probably where you get your drinking water. Um, natural gas can be leaked from, from shale gas as well. And in many parts of the United States, people are living there. The shale gas industry is in literally backyard. And as a result, people can put their water on fire because the level of, of methane, the major natural gas, is saturated. People cannot use the water anymore because there is a danger of explosion of the house. Or... Now, defenders of fracking will say that movies like Gasland are bending the truth. Long before fracking, methane was already naturally present in some people's well water. In fact, Avner van Gogh confirms that some regions do have naturally occurring methane in the water, in northeastern Pennsylvania, for example. But scientists have also shown that there's a conclusive link between fracking and methane in the drinking water of many other locations. The main reason for these leaks? Well, it's all part of the intense pressure that fracking exerts on the well casing. Wells are generally fracked a dozen times or more. And over time, this takes a serious toll on the structure. Daniel Alessi. I think some suspect that most wells leak right to some extent. The main problem is that it's the cement job on the well itself. Uh, in fracturing, every time you do a fracture, you're putting that casing under pressure. And uh, I had talked to uh, uh, an expert on cement jobs uh, from one of the oil companies in Houston. I forget who it was, but he was sort of the lead from one of the company, one of the major companies. And he said that every time you do a fracture, you weaken the bond between the casing and the cement by something like 50%. So you, you can see this is cumulative, right? You do it one time, you've lost half the strength of that bond. Well, if you fracture a well a dozen times, you basically, that seal is shot. So natural gas is definitely leaking from fracking wells into the drinking water. We should clarify, though, there's no evidence that the gas three or four kilometers below the surface is entering our drinking water at that lower level. After all, our drinking water is quite close to the surface. It's only once the gas is coming up the well that we begin to see problems. As serious as this is, the bigger concern for Daniel Alessi is what happens when the water and fracking fluid come back up the well. Remember, it's a whole slew of chemicals going down into deep underground at high pressure, and... Uh, the temperature is somewhat elevated, right? So it's uh, maybe 90, 100, 120 degrees, something like that Celsius. And so one of the questions is you have uh, the original groundwater, which has its own constituents. That's mixed, as you said, with these uh, organic chemicals, propens, uh, things like that. And that interacts then with the formation which you're fracturing. Say it's a shale. So that shale has its own solid chemistry. It has exchangeable ions, things like that. 
and it has its own formation water. So you're mixing all of these things together, which in itself is a very complicated system. But you're doing that at a very high pressure and a very uh, somewhat elevated temperature. And so the question about what geochemical reactions happen when you do this sort of very complicated geochemical experiment is an open question. There could be heavy metals of concern. Uh, there could be uh, organometallic species that are forming. The concern there is that if you have an organometallic species, they can be a vector of toxicity and even at relatively low concentrations. Because the water deep underground contains a lot of dissolved minerals, it's highly saline. Even minor spills of this water could be harmful to some fish, plants, and other organisms. Then there's this added risk of heavy metals and toxins being added to the mix of water and oil and gas that rises back up. Even small spills at the wellhead could have big consequences. Avner van Gosh has even found that some of this produced water is dangerously radioactive. And we found that uh, the, the water that's coming together with the gas is highly radioactive in the Marcella space, natural occurring radioactivity. So when it spills or disposes into the environment, this radioactivity is stuck into the sediment. And you're creating a legacy of radioactivity. And when I'm saying radioactivity, it's really high. It's exceeding what in the U.S. you call um, low-waste radioactivity disposal site. So you have a special license for this in the United States. And the level we found in stream and river when disposal took place for the last couple of years, we found that it's much higher level of radioactivity. So that's another... Radioactive sediment is a big problem because it can easily enter the food chain. And in a few years, we won't be able to eat the fish anymore because they've been poisoned. This is called biomagnification. One way that the fracking industry has approached this problem is to simply re-inject all of the wastewater back deep underground. This, as you can imagine, has its own problems. Sources aren't very verified. It's just whatever I skim through online. But these are just the things that I hear. And then you all hear the stories about communities in the U.S. They believe that the earthquakes that are being caused in those areas are the result of fracking. Um, I heard that it might kind of undermine... Um, geological structures and make areas sensitive to like earthquakes and stuff that might not usually be sens- be liable to have earthquakes there. Um, and I guess that's kind of a concern. We heard from many people who think that fracking causes earthquakes. All of the intense pressure does cause microseismic events, although only in three or four cases have they been intense enough for humans to feel. When people near fracking wells do feel the ground shake, it's more likely because of deep well injection, which here in Alberta is the most common method used to dispose of fracking wastewater. Rick Shalternik, geological engineer at the University of Alberta, explains more. That, that has probably got to be one of the, the, the bigger concerns across the board. Um, uh, large-scale waste disposal, deep well disposal, injection of steam for thermal, uh, cyclic steam stimulation, any of that high energy, it generates those kind of shear events that are actually small little earthquakes. If you, if it, that's actually what generates the energy that you can, that you can feel. And, and it, it is, it, it's a part of what people worry about is ensuring that, that those are not so large that they cause a problem. 
Of course, when you hear about all of that water being sent deep underground, never to be seen from again, the more pressing thought might be, well, that's a huge waste of water, isn't it? And for some people, this is a big concern. Alexia Lane, author of On Fracking, is especially concerned about water loss here in Alberta. The water that is injected into the well with, with a cocktail of chemicals, and including biocides and propant, is almost always permanently removed from the hydrologic cycle because it's, it's very challenging to remediate that water with, with a vast array of chemicals that are present in it. And additionally, because of proprietary information, not all chemicals are known. Each fracking well can use between 2 and 5 million gallons of water over its lifetime. Fracking fluid can be cleaned up and recycled, but a lot of water is lost during the operation where it seeps away into the bedrock. Common estimates suggest only a third to less than a half of the water comes back. Although it's millions of gallons being withdrawn, industry proponents and some experts would say that this is overall a very small portion of the water budget, less than 1%. But Alexia Lane is still worried. Well, I think you have to consider it in the larger context where we have other stresses as well at the same time on our freshwater resources. So while that is true that it is, relatively speaking, quite a small quantity, uh, what we can assume is that that quantity is only going to increase over time. As are other changes to our hydrology, such as, um, you know, changes to weather patterns, uh, increase in population density, taxes, our freshwater resources. And we don't always necessarily have a full grasp on our groundwater resources. I think we, we have quite an extensive inventory of our surface water resources in Alberta, but groundwater is a different story, although they're catching up with that. It all begs the question, do we even have to use fresh water? In Alberta, we only use fresh water because regulators have made it so cheap. Uh, right now, uh, the economics are such that it, the majority of that water is deep well injected never to be seen again. Uh, absolutely, yeah, the technology exists. It's a, it's a cost thing, right? I mean, we, can, we could return any water down back to pure laboratory-grade water if we wanted to. It's just a matter of, of cost. And, and in this case, scale, right, we're looking at hundreds of thousands to millions of liters of water. In other more water-scarce places, fracking operators use undrinkable saline water drilled from deep underground. Canadian operators might like you to think that that's what happens in Alberta, too. But the truth is, the use of saline water for fracking is minimal. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves, because here's our third big question. What can we do to improve the situation with fracking? So, um, what is fracking, as from what you know? Um, I don't know too, too much about fracking. Um, occasionally it's mentioned on the local news. Um, in which case, you know, me and my buddies kind of talk about it, discuss it and such, but I really haven't heard too, too much about it, which is surprising. <laughs> Why is that surprising to you? Uh, given I live in Alberta, you'd figure with the oil industry being here, you'd probably hear a lot more about it. <laughs> That's the crucial point here. There are tons of specific fixes we could talk about, but until the public is engaged and informed, we won't have a real debate on fracking at all. It's a challenge sometimes to understand 
what is media sensationalization and what is real. And so hopefully with the information that's becoming more accessible and more available to people, they're arming themselves with information. And that also helps to drive policy forward and helps shape the regulatory structure that exists. Uh, So I certainly think that as more people understand what fracking is and understand the issues, there's a stronger push towards doing this in a, in a way that is better for our freshwater resources and, of course, in turn, all of us. Unfortunately, getting the information out to the public isn't just a matter of education. There's a lot of research that still needs to be done. And in many ways, industry needs to support greater transparency of its practices. Everyone is disadvantaged by the secrecy surrounding each company's unique fracking fluid mixtures full of proprietary chemicals. Not knowing what we're dealing with makes it more difficult to research remediation strategies and to recover from accidents as they occur. Records of accidents in many cases are also locked up in private databases. This information needs to be made public and accessible so we can get a sense for how big or small the risks of fracking truly are. All of this uncertainty contributes a great deal to the public fear around fracking. What what we have seen are places where there hasn't traditionally been oil and gas development. Having a voice around fracking and saying we don't want fracking in advance of there even being fracking operations in their country. I mean, that indicates a real fear or a real pushback. Um, It's a very emotional topic for people. And so there's a lot of concerned peop- you know, citizens coming together. So I think they're, tr- they're trying to get ahead of the policy curve and inform policy before, before it starts and then it's too late. Avner Van Gogh and Daniel Alessi both agreed that the problems with fracking can be managed. But we need our policymakers to be actively regulating the risks. The distance of fracking operations to residential water wells must be increased. Water withdrawals need limits. And there must be incentives to limit water loss. Spills need to be reported. And of course, all of this regulation can only succeed with proper enforcement. Also, people need to be protected because even with strong regulation, it's only a matter of time before an accident happens. As the debate around flaming tap water shows, Industry will try to prove that water was already contaminated by natural processes. In some cases, this is true, but in others, it's the fault of the fracking operations. Having scientists conduct baseline studies of the water before a well is drilled will reveal when fracking does have negative consequences on our water quality. And if fracking does pollute our groundwater, then, as Avner van Gogh described it, there can be serious consequences. If the drinking water in a community becomes undrinkable, then property values tank and families may be forced to leave their homes. Policymakers and industry need to plan ahead with compensation schemes for affected communities. These are big policy challenges. And as we've explored here, the risks to the environment and human health are considerable. But all the experts we spoke to are ultimately optimistic that with good science and a proper public debate, we can sort this out in a way that protects the future of our watersheds. For Terra Informa, I'm Danielle Dalgoy. And I'm Trevor Chaffraser. And that's all the frack we know.
That was Danielle Dolgoy and Trevor Chow Fraser's award-winning piece on fracking from 2014. And that's all for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlie Blay and Charlotte Thomason, and to Danielle Dogoy and Trevor Traffraser. I've been your host, Amanda Rooney, and I'll catch you next week on Terra Informa.